Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the writer AJ Pierce, who grew up in Hampshire and worked in magazine publishing and marketing before getting into writing. After gaining a degree in American Studies at the University of Sussex, she embarked on a two-decade career in magazine marketing, working on everything from what's new in engineering to smash hits. And it is the world of magazine publishing that provided the backdrop to AJ's highly acclaimed debut novel, Dear Mrs. Bird, which was published back in 2018 and became a Sunday Times bestseller and a Richard and Judy book club pick. The novel was set in London in 1941 and features Emmeline Lake, an aspiring journalist who begins working on the Women's Friend magazine, assisting the formidable Mrs. Bird, the magazine's resident agony aunt. And Emmeline's adventures continue and yours cheerfully, AJ's new novel, which has just been published. AJ, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Now, obviously, I mentioned there that your new novel, uh, Yours Cheerfully, has just come out. It is the next book in what we hope is this uh, going to be a series uh, featuring Emmeline Lake. The first one was Dear Mrs. Bird. I probably have to tell people in advance that there may be spoilers because obviously we're going to be talking about Yours Cheerfully and we won't spoil that, but we may be in reference to Dear Mrs. Bird. If anybody's not read them, they should really go and read them as soon as they've finished listening to this podcast. Yes, straight away. We're just recording this. I'm just back from a, a week's holiday in Sky up in the north of Scotland, and I took the two books and I read them back to back. And it was great doing that because you're immediately engaged in the characters and the story. And then you get to the end of the first book and you want to know what happens. And lo and behold, the next book's waiting at the side of my bed, and I could just go straight on to reading yours cheerfully. That's what I would recommend to readers. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I- I try to write yours cheerfully so that if you happen to pick it up when you're you're passing through a bookshop or you've heard about it or whatever, you it is a standalone book, so you can read it. There's a prologue in there that kind of updates people as to where they are. But yes, I think in a in an ideal world, it's nice to read them in in sequence because then you you haven't spoiled the first one because obviously the first one has a huge impact on what happens in the second, particularly with the characters and their development. And you know, in, in terms of writing the, the book, when you got the idea for the first book and, and the character and how you wanted to write it, was it always a case of wanting to write the first book and then see what happened? Or was it in your head that you wanted just to continue telling this story of, of Emmeline and all the other characters that you've developed? I always hoped so, yes. When I was writing Dear Mrs. Bird, I really enjoyed the, char- the main characters and I, and I did think it would be lovely to follow Emmy and her friends through the whole of the war to see what happened to them and I kind of in my head I know the last page of the last book with them and and what happens but that certainly it did rather depend on how well the first book went and my agent didn't go out to publishers saying yes well this complete unknown has written 17 books about this person do you want to sign her so it was it was a two book deal and I think they were they were happy for me to write a sequel so fingers crossed I'll be able to write some more as well. And I suppose I'm guessing for every novelist, when you write your first book, you invest so much in it and, you know, that thrill of getting published and you want it to do as well as possible. Could you have imagined how well that your first novel actually did? Absolutely not. I mean, it was a dream being signed up by Picador because I was a huge, huge fan of of them. And it's all a bit of a blur now. I think with this second book, I'm more aware of what is going on and trying to go, okay, enjoy this bit today. Don't even think about the lovely thing that's going to happen tomorrow or the scary thing that's going to happen tomorrow, but just enjoy every bit of it. And so that's, I think, I'm just learning as I go. I still feel like a real newbie to this business. Several of my friends have written lots and lots of books very successfully, and and so I still feel very much like the new person and definitely still learning. And I I hope I'll learn with every book that I write and, and get better. That's the aim. I was trying to think of, and what I like about the novels is it's it's very hard to, you know, sometimes people quite like to put labels on them, they're, they're this kind of book or that kind of book. I think, in on the one hand, they're, they're very funny. So you immediately, 
you know, you find yourself laughing, so you're engaging with the, the characters. There's a real seriousness to the, the novels as well. And, and I, I was making the point to someone that actually, for me, if you want to read about women's experiences in the Second World War, I would recommend your novels before I would recommend a non-fiction book because you're telling their story through their, their eyes. And there's some really serious issues and serious things going on, but you're doing it in such a way that you're taking the readers with you. And it's, as I say, it's entertaining, but it's really informative as well. Oh, thank you. That is a lovely thing to say. I mean, I, I think one of the things I've been super lucky with is, is meeting people who have shared their experiences with me. And, and that, I think, has been, has been invaluable with both books. And on the, the latest book, I spoke to several women in the mid-80s to mid-90s. And from that, as much as I, I really try to research it through books and magazines and newspapers and, and get the facts right and all that sort of stuff, actually speaking to somebody who were there, that's the bit that I think really, really helps because, in fact, I re-listened to uh, the recording I, I'd made on my phone of three women and I were chatting and I was supposedly interviewing them about their experiences as, as teenagers and young women. And most of, most of the recording is us just having a laugh. And these women are, I know it's a bit of a cliche to talk about wartime spirit, but they're just such fabulous women. And gutsy and brave but also they didn't see any of it as particularly remarkable and I try to write about normal people in very abnormal circumstances and I think everybody was slightly heroic in their own way or at least many people were slightly heroic in their own way obviously one of the things I I try not to do is to glamorize the home front and and have it in that cliched oh well done everyone stiff up a lip and off you go because obviously (laughs) you know tons of crime at the time and the blackouts made it very easy for there to be criminal activities and some people dodged doing any work so it wasn't all it wasn't all as we see in the in the propaganda but the women that I've met have been really inspirational so I kind of try to take what I've found from them and sort of add it to what I remember as being a young woman in London you know hopeful for a new career not really very on the ball trying to really live you know in your early 20s when everything um, particularly I came from the provinces from a a London overspill area and to suddenly be let loose in London sharing a flat going out not really thinking about the future in particular so trying to take that very natural young kind of attitude um, and put it in a scenario which is incredibly serious is with the spirit of these women, it's it's a fun thing to get to write about. When I was reading them, I think there was two things that struck me. One is it's almost to an extent you're telling an untold story that people will know from either their schooling or whatever the, the certain aspects of the Second World War, either home or abroad with the fighting. But maybe that whole home front story, in particular, women's story, hasn't been told before. So you were kind of you were kind of opening the curtains to that and letting people see what was happening but I think what always engages me is the characters and I think that's what that's what's brilliant that's why you want to just keep reading the book because you you're immediately engaged by the characters and you're on their journey and you want to you know especially I think Emmeline's just a brilliant character because she's obviously maybe a, a woman in a, a man's world in terms of journalism but trying to forge her own career and, and having that sense of independence and intelligence and wanting to you know, as to tell stories, but tell the real stories because she's aware of what's going on from people writing and, you know, to the problem pages. I, I just love that. Oh, thank you. I, I love Emmy. And she came about, as she evolved, I realised that she was quite an interesting mix from her background because she, she has the confidence that comes with being a, a GP's daughter. You know, she's middle class and she's been privileged and she's, you know, she's been very lucky in her life up until now. But on her mum's side, it's a far more radical side. And there are references in, in both books, as you know, to her grandma. And her grandma was part of the suffrage movement, as was her mother as a very young woman. And that came from when I was reading about the leading suffragettes. And I thought, what must it be like to be one of their daughters? If your mum was a, a radical feminist in the 1910s, how were you brought up? And how did you tackle the 1930s and 40s? Because I think quite often we tend to get a bit cliched about the decade. So you've kind of got, oh, there was suffrage and then it's flappers and then in the 30s, Great Depression. 
40s, the war, 50s, Stepford Wives, 60s, it got interesting and feminism started again. But actually what happened in that bit in the middle, so Emmy has the radical side from her mum and her, her mum, who was in both books, has taught her that everyone should have a voice. So Emmy, her, Emmy thinks everyone should be heard. This is how she's been brought up that actually, you know, you do fight for what is right. And when you put that together with the confidence of coming from a background where she is much loved and it's very stable, in Dear Mrs. Bird, when she, she's quite naive, but she goes into this new job, just thinking, well, if I just do the right thing, everything will be fine. And I think she always does mean very well. But obviously, in the first book, she tackles it in a really not a very clever way. In the second book, it was really important that she didn't that she did move on and she didn't keep making the same mistakes. She's a little bit more grown up. She's learnt that you can't just wade in. She's learning how to work within the system. And that's the big challenge in yours cheerfully, that she she actually has a almost a far harder, there's more of a dilemma. She doesn't just doesn't just think, I'm not supposed to be helping these people, but I'm going to because it's the right thing to do. She has to work out how she can still be loyal to the patriotic duty that she that she has and the magazine that she now feels incredibly loyal to but also follow her heart and help the readers so I think she has a more complicated dilemma that she has to try to pick her way through in the second book but she's obviously she she will always in the end I think wade in in the end she'll always take the risk to do what she thinks is right because I'd really like that that as you say that you know, in the, the second book, a lot of the, the, the women's magazines, a lot of the magazines were, were co-opted by the government to almost promote, I'm not saying government propaganda, but try and promote that message of, you know, getting women to volunteer, to work in munitions factories, etc. Yeah. So they have to do that. But as you say, at the same time, she becomes very aware of how important, the, has become aware of how important the magazine is to people as a way of maybe for, sometimes maybe the only voice that they have to have a conversation with, as it were. So... Does yes. that kind of sense of duty to them as, as well, which, you know, in the course of the book, that can be difficult for her. Yes, indeed. And that comes from a lot of the magazines that I've, I've read that, you know, when you first read them, it's, it's recipes and fiction and fashion and, and how to make your rations last. And it's all, it's a great, it's an entertainment, it's informative, they're doing a good job. And then the more you read, and I've read loads now, the more you see little examples of editorial pieces which are re- clearly standing up for their readers. And, and that, that might be towards the end of the year, the war, there were articles and opinion pieces about equal wages, equal pay for women. In 1941, which is when the, the second book set, there were pieces about um, saying, come on, the government, we've got loads of people, we've had letters from our readers saying, we've all volunteered for these jobs, but it's been months and you haven't placed us anywhere. And one about, I think it was women in the RAF and the WAF and, and it just said you know, stop putting them in sort of domesticated jobs let us run these things and then the blokes can go and do this other stuff come on get on with it and I was really interested in that that it's not just your sort of jam and Jerusalem type stuff and being part of the propaganda efforts and propaganda is a really interesting word isn't it because on a personal level I see it as quite a it's a negative thing propaganda isn't great but I was speaking to my father, who was a, a young lad in the war, and, and I, I said to him, were you scared of what would happen if the Germans won? And, and I remember them saying, no, because I believe the propaganda. I always believed we would win. And that made me change my mind a little bit on, on that, because I thought if it meant that a lad who was nine years old when the war started felt less scared of living in London in the midst of all this, then actually, thank goodness for that. So really interesting. And they needed the propaganda to get more women in, women into the factories. It's just that, as as Emmy finds out, nobody is supporting them when they go in there. Because it's funny that on that that you mentioned about the the idea of you know the issues of equal pay being raised between men and women in the novel. One of the key things is effectively childcare at work and and what you do with working mothers and how you help them. Those are issues. If you wrote a book that was set in twenty twenty one, those are sadly still issues that women are having to deal with even now I know it's ridiculous isn't it I mean it's just it is that why are we still having to talk about this this is just mad um but sadly yes particularly in the current climate not to get too political about things but yeah I don't see anything changing terribly quickly at the moment 
because I say that, you know, although the book's very much rooted in 1941, and I love the, just even the language and the the more formal courtship, as it were, you know, like, so yeah. so Emmy, a lot of her courtship with her, her fiancé is done through letters, and, and which is particularly of its time, and, and I, I really love that. But as I say, there's, there's just elements in it that just really resonate with you as a, a 21st century reader. Well, it's one of those things that is interesting when you're, you're writing it, and when you're reading the problems on the problem pages, the problems are, are in, there are two sorts of them. There are ones that can only be from a wartime experience, you know, awful stuff, missing people or losing people, dreadful things like that. And then you have a lo- loads of the questions. Are, they're no different to any of the questions we'd ask now. It's about love and families and falling in love with the wrong person or being cheated on or wanting kids when someone else doesn't want them or not wanting them. And so they're all very relatable problems and so people haven't really changed and sometimes people say how can you write relatively jolly books set in the war the thing is that when things are horrible you want more than ever to be able to somehow have a good time so you know people at the start of the war they closed they closed the cinemas and the theatres and stuff like that and then they opened them again because morale needed you know they needed to keep up morale and so I think it's probably one of the things that has been so hard over the last year or so that we haven't been able to get together and keep each other going in real life. So, yeah, I think writing about humans in 1941 isn't really that different to writing about humans in 2021. And I, I mean, I said right at the start, I think particularly when you first start reading Dear Mrs Bird, there are bits where you're just laughing. I mean, it's, it's funny, but actually it's almost like you kind of lull us into this false sense of this is great, <laughs> it's, it's a nice, gentle funny book but then there's, there's a couple of bits in that book that really bring home their surroundings and what they're having to deal with that are really quite you know very sad and tragic and you kind of like whoa I, I wasn't expecting that and then I think the same thing in, in yours cheerfully as well that there's some really there's a scene really early on when Emmy's taken to the when the, the ministry I think it's the ministry of information and that's when they first co-opt all the magazines and then she ends up having this slightly confrontation with two other female journalists in the toilet afterwards which was really funny but then again some of the issues that you're dealing with are really really serious that again you're drawn into the book and then you think wow I wasn't expecting that as well I like doing that sounds a bit (laughs) manipulative actually now now I'm thinking about it but I lots of the books that I read were written in the 30s and 40s and I like reading authors that are able to to make you laugh one moment and then just maybe one line will make you think Dee Stevenson does that occasionally in, in her books. I think one of the Mrs. Tim books set in the war. It's all very funny. And then there'll be just one line which will remind you of the, of the huge loss someone may have experienced. And then she just leaves it and carries on. But you're, you really have pause from that. So I, I enjoy having that sort of difference between parts of the book are just, a, hopefully, a bit of a laugh to read and you can, you know, enjoy that reading it on the bus or or whatever you're doing as someone who commuted for years and years and years I read a lot of books on trains and I always like a book that either makes you laugh out loud in public or cry in public I think any book that can make you do that I've always liked and so I, I do like that sort of okay so we can enjoy this as as a yarn but there is a heart to it but I also think as well it, it makes it more realistic because you know to your point of who you know, cinemas, etc., reopened very quickly because it needed it for morale. And it's one of the things, again, in the, in the books that sometimes normal life just continues, that it's not a constant blackout. There's not constant, there is, there's regular bombings, but, you know, normal things happen. So that it's the same yeah. as if you're reading the book, that there has to be that, the shades. It can't be one thing or the other. So, so it gives it a more realistic picture, I think. I hope so. I think continuing the normality was really important in the war not least because it was kind of in being normal in doing normal things even in in tiny things that still carried on you were beating Hitler you know if you got to fall in love if you got to have a wedding even if it was a a really small one or if you you got to go to the cinema or or laugh or have any fun it was one in the eye to him even though obviously they weren't going to know but it was Obviously, a huge part of the Nazi campaign was trying to crush the spirit of the British um, civilian population. So, so it was really important that um, people carried on. And, and I, I don't like the cliche, keep calm and carry on, because I think sometimes you have to not keep calm. You have to actually just 
fight your guts out. But keeping on with the normality and not letting yourself fall apart was was huge, hugely important to them. Well, in terms of the, the podcast, obviously we'll have a we'll, we'll chat more about the the books and hopefully the, the books to come in the series that uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting. I haven't read the two of them back to back. I'm waiting eagerly for the next one. Uh, no, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm I'm holding you back here. Um, <laughs> But what I, I like to do is, obviously, I want to take you on the, the literary journey of your life and, first of all, take you right back to childhood and get you to choose your favourite book from childhood. There's a couple that you've given me. The first of those, which is the, the kind of the one that's that's made it to the top of the tree, is Jill's Jim Cannon by Ruby Ferguson. What was mm-hmm. it about that book that stayed with you? That sort of represents all the pony books that I used to read as a kid. I was, I was one of those children that was pony mad and... There was no prospect of having my own pony. That just wasn't the world we lived in. As quite a bookie kid, that was, I think, probably one of the first pony books that I, I read. And it was a great example of books opening up this whole world that I could be part of. And Jill's Jim Carner, I really liked because if I remember rightly, it's about a girl who her parents couldn't afford to buy her a pony. And then I think she finds a rather skinny one on a bit of field somewhere and then obviously turns the pony into a show jumper who wins and it's that sort of thing and for a kid like me it was like oh yes this could be me and I remember in our village we used to ride I mean you'd never do this now but we'd ride our bikes down to the common and sit and watch the the ponies on the common and some of the braver kids would try and ride them which was a terrible idea and really dangerous but in your head there was always that possibility that you could tame a pony that didn't belong to you and then suddenly cross the line into the other world of horses and stuff. So I, I used to eat up those books. And I think a lot of them were written, I think perhaps in the 50s and 60s, and they must have been reprinted because it was all quite kind of, you know, children in big Eric Morecambe britches marching around. And um, my mum, actually, who lived in London and probably hadn't seen a real horse until they were evacuated, she gave me her pony books that she'd had in the 1940s. And I loved those too. And that was all people called, you know, Binky marching around and, and no, come on, get on your pony and gallop on and all that stuff. And I just ate them up. And I think it was the other, the other sort of shortlisted book was the Amada Book of Ghosts that I used to read those as well and terrify myself. And I think that the pony books and the ghost books, they were just a great example, I think, of learning that books can either take you to another world or set your imagination off in a way that absolutely terrifies you and stays with you so you have to sleep with the lights on for weeks. Because funny, quite often I think when people, when they choose a book in this category, it's very often a series because, you know, that yes. age when, when you, I mean, most kids, if, you, if you're into reading, you're a voracious reader, so you've, you, you devour books and it's almost difficult for either your parents or for the library to keep up with you. So when you have a series that you discover, that's absolutely wonderful. But as you say, you maybe don't realise at the time that what that, that book is, you, you know, you're maybe going and looking in fields at horses and, and wishing one day you could have a horse or you're scared by the books. As you say, you don't realise that it is implanting what books can do to you. And, and then you're just searching for more books that can give you similar experiences. Absolutely. I mean, I feel so lucky that my parents are pretty bookish. They're big readers as well. And my dad reads, still reads tons of nonfiction. My mum is huge she will she just devours fiction and when I was little Saturdays were the library day and you'd you'd go off it was back in the day where you'd have those little cards that they'd take a bit of card out of a book and stick it in your funny yeah. little I think you had four or maybe six of these little cards and the excitement and also the, the trauma of having to choose the number of books you'd take home and you'd sit there on the floor with about 12 books you desperately wanted but you could only have four and so I'd sit on the floor in the library, desperately reading them, reading the ones I didn't think I could get out that week. And that was a, gosh, simple time. She'd come home and watch Starsky and Hutch kind of thing and uh, on, on the three channels available. And yeah, not always. I mean, there's an awful lot that was bad about the 70s, but the library was one of the best bits of it. Just discovering that you could go to different places and different worlds through books. That's a gift that you have for life, isn't it? It always saddens me that, you know, for example, you see it at this time when maybe our governments or local authorities are having to look at finances. To me, one of the last things they should ever look at 
in closing their libraries because they should always remain open. And it's always sad, you know, there's been a few up here in Glasgow where they're earmarking libraries to close because it's more than just the books within them. It's, it's what it gives to people. It can be a sense of community. And, you know, particularly when you're talking about those books at that age, the thing that's always struck me, and again, I would have a similar experience of going to the library, it's probably the first place where you start to feel grown up in that your parents would let you go there without supervision after a certain point. And you ended up maybe reading books that were slightly older than, than you were. And so you, yeah. it gives you that sense of being grown up. Yes, you're, you're making some of your earliest independent decisions. And it might be between which, it's between which books you choose. But in that environment, in the children's section in the library, you can't really make a bad choice, hopefully. And yeah, very grown up. You've got your own little token card things and that brilliant noise when the librarian would get her stamp with the date and it would go ka-chink. I dreamt of having one of those stamps that went ka-chink. <laughs> oh, to be a grown-up with the power that went with it. I just, yeah. um, yeah, and go home and play libraries with yourself. Oh, a brilliant world. And, and I think it is awful when funding gets, gets cut for libraries because particularly if you've got a child, like it sounds we both were, who, who will read loads and loads, you can't possibly buy that many books for them. If your child is marching through four or six books a week, if there aren't libraries, then it's only the really rich kids that are going to be able to do that. And it's quite plainly not fair and wrong. So, yeah, it, it strikes me as ridiculous to be closing libraries. I once, a few years back, was asked to, to write a love letter to my local library, oh. which was a wonderful thing to do. And it was the same library that was obviously my parents had taken me and then I took my kids when they were wee. But one of the things when I was reading up about libraries and what always struck me is that during the, the kind of Great Depression in America, the late 20s, early 30s, not, I don't think there was a single public library closed. They became a kind of beacon for people that maybe had nowhere else to go or nowhere to meet people or so that, that they are so important. The other thing I was just going to ask you is that did you ever, ever get to the point where you, you found a stray pony that you were able to tame and, and call your own? <laughs> no, I ended up when I was in my mid-thirties, I finally bought my own horse. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a case of, well, you buy your own pony when you're a grown-up. And so, yeah, 25 years later, I, I did. Still got him. Still have him. He's very old now. But um, yeah. When you did that, did that take you back then to being that wee girl reading those books and maybe sitting in the field and, and watching the horses? Well, funnily enough, do you remember that there was a TV programme and I think it was called White Horses. It had a theme tune. Yeah. Which was Snow white horses let me ride away, very 60. And my horse happens to be a grey horse. And uh, I used to, when I was riding, I'd ha I used to have a playlist I'd listen to on my iPod and um, back in the day. And I had that on there, actually. And it just used to make me laugh because there I was by then, 40-something, cantering around on this, this horse, <laughs> playing the theme tune that I listened to all those years ago. And there was a certain kind of like, yeah, got it. <laughs> I've got I'm fine it's taken me a long time it's cost a blooming fortune <laughs> I hadn't thought it through when I got the horse um they do cost a lot of money to keep going but um oh worth it worth it and it's just such a brilliant thing to get to do that yeah it was a childhood dream and it turned out to be a really good one brilliant well if uh, I can take you on from that childhood and onto the kind of teenage formative years and the book that you've chosen in this category is The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas. I still like stuff about musketeers. I sometimes think, could I write a musketeer book? I think, because oh, it kind of moves on actually from the horse thing. I'll sound obsessed in this. I'm now thinking about it. But it's kind of, you know, flashy blokes galloping around on horses, fighting and saving people. And, yeah, when I was, I think in my early teens, I wandered off of reading in particular. I'd read a lot as a child, all the pony stuff and the Ina Blyton, et cetera. And then school kind of came in and I didn't actually enjoy English literature at school very much. I don't think it was taught particularly well. You know, it wasn't very inspiring. Uh, and I preferred English language, you know, writing stuff, really. But then I kind of, my mum used to read, she introduced me to Nora Lofts, who wrote sort of historical, I suppose, romances and and I started reading those and they were great fun. And then somehow or another, I wandered on to Alexander Dumas. And that was lovely. The whole historical world, again, a different world and one that you could lose yourself in. You know, there you are at a kind of a, 
oh, I don't know, quite an average, not particularly inspiring teenager in a comprehensive, hating most of the different subjects. And how brilliant to go home and read books that are all about adventure and excitement and, and a bit of romance and, yeah, Another World took me away. So that, that was one of the books that I think was a favourite to turn to. I liked yeah. it a lot. I'm not a, a great rereader. You know, I think it's partly because if I start to think about rereading the book, I think, well, there's, there's so many books that I haven't read. Yes. But that book is one of the books that I've, I must have read it about three or four times. I absolutely love that book. It's, it's one of my favourite books. I think as, a, as an adventure story, I don't think it's any better. As a historical novel telling you what was going on at the time, yes. I can't think of anything better. I think the characters, not just the, the, the Musketeers and D'Artagnan, but like Cardo Richelieu and Lady yes. de Winter as baddies, they're as brilliant as you're, you're ever going to get. When I just saw you, because it's maybe been a couple of years since I've read it, and when I saw you'd chosen that, I thought, do you know, it's about time I read that book again. Do you know, I, it's ages since I've read it. I must go back and read it because we've probably all seen so many different film versions or TV series loosely based around the concept. But I, yes, I must go back and, and read it. I can remember reading Wuthering Heights and Lord of the Rings and all those quite adventurous books in various different ways but that's the one that stands out I can remember walking through the sixth form college reading it between lessons in a slightly pretentious way let's be honest um <laughs> but, well I was um, just going to say I I always have a lot of admiration for people who can read and walk at the same time because I can't I'm, I've, I've probably seen it in a film and just thought <laughs> I've become more interesting by doing that <laughs> what a total prune but um <laughs> It's a great, it is a great novel, I think. What did you think of the, see the BBC, you know, recently they, they did, maybe in the last two or three years or so, did an adaptation. What did you think of that? I loved it. I loved the theme tune. I thought it was great fun, I think. Yeah, um, so did I. And the last couple of episodes were really moving. And I think a lot a lot of it depends if they had some cracking baddies in it. And uh, I just thought it was great fun and it had a humour to it as well. I think that seems to come through. A lot of the adaptations actually have had a humour and humour and camaraderie and risk and good winning over bad. I thought it was a really good series. I was really sad when it finished, actually. Yeah, I must admit, I enjoyed it as well. It was interesting, you know, you were saying that book you chose, because quite often, again, for this category, people choose a book that maybe when they were at school, at the higher, higher levels of school, that's a book that kind of stayed with them and they, they studied, whereas you had the opposite effect. It was actually a book away from school. So I thought that was that was quite interesting because teachers are so crucial as well, and particularly when you get to be teenagers, because I think everybody, because there's so many other interests and distractions when you get to be a teenager, that books don't have maybe the same appeal as other things. So it's, yeah. it's really important if you can kind of stay on that. Although I think if you were a voracious reader as a child, it's that foundation. You'll always come back to it, I think. I think so. And I think certainly by the time I was in, in sixth form in the local college, then I was beginning to sort of branch out and then started reading Jilly Cooper, the, the, the book she used to write about posh girls called Octavia. And again, that was another world I knew I would know. I was never going to be like that, but I really loved those books. And yeah, I think I continued to love reading almost despite school rather than because of it. But having said that, I bet I wasn't very nice to teach. I think I was probably the sulky one at the back. <laughs> and I do remember being really horrible when we were, we could either study Keats or Dunn for A-level. And my teacher wanted us to, she picked one and I disagreed with it. And I remember starting a, a petition so that we could do the other one. And he was like, oh, horrible child. <laughs> just, just do what you're told, you foul child. But yes, still lucky to, to get to do it and to be introduced to various authors I wouldn't have, have known um, otherwise. But yeah, I think I've always liked escapist literature that takes I'm still a massive fan of historical novels and I think I'll always write historical novels because I really like going to a completely different time and I suppose then as a writer you're then escaping even though well you're you're obviously going to then take your readers and take them back to the 1940s when you're writing the books I'm guessing you're completely immersed in that time and in that place yes I am a bit I do listen to the music I have a playlist and if I'm thinking oh I've going to have to write and I don't know what to write I'll stick on some 1940s stuff to get my head into it or might watch an old black and white movie and I I kind of collect various I'll use eBay as an excuse to go on there and 
if I'm describing a room, I'll go, Ooh, let's go on eBay and write 1930s lampshade or, or whatever, and then invariably end up buying stuff. I like to buy things. I like to own things that belong to the characters. I like having a, a physical example. I mean, this, this for example, is my ink pen. Uh, this one's from 1948. But when I write with this, I just, I always want to know who wrote with this? Whose bag has this been in? Whose desk has this been in? And all that sort of stuff. I hope you, you can't hear my dog who's drinking water really, really loudly. Dogs would make regular appearances on the podcast. It's fine. I think they're now <laughs> becoming part and parcel of it. So. <laughs> well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, AJ Pierce. And AJ, we are on to your third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book you've chosen is Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day by Winifred Watson. Yes, I love this book. I've chosen that because it was one of the books that I first read that was written in, I think it was written in the 40s. And it's just, it's a it's a cheery book. Um, there's been a film version of it, which I'm not a massive fan of, but it's one of, this is a book that is, it's a great introduction into this whole era of female writers, a lot of mid-war things who had this, who had quite a witty way of writing but also were very good at pathos. And it's it's a novel that marches briskly along, but you're really rooting for Miss Pettigrew. You want things that are going to be good to, to happen to her because she's she's not had loads of luck. And it's an easy read. I like easy reads. And also, I'll try not to go into a rant, but I think it's about time that the phrase easy read was changed as being slightly a slightly derogatory sniffy way of talking about some books and should be championed as something that's a real plus you know sometimes I've, I've heard people say well it's an easy read but it, it's it's worth it and you just think well I like an easy read I don't need to beat my head against the wall all the time a hard read is great but an easy read that's wonderful you don't say oh that journey to some beautiful scenery is really easy but the scenery is nice <laughs> You <laughs> oh, I had a lovely drive through the lakes. That was smashing. Also, I think as well, in terms of that, is that I think there's a skill in writing those, that kind of book, however you, you term it, because it can be quite difficult to make something seem easy. But also, some yes. of that's just a reflection of the fact that you enjoy any book that you really enjoy and you get totally immersed in seems easier to read in a way. That a lot of yes, times a hard book is something that you're kind of toiling with. There are so many books. Why toil, I say? Why toil? But I think, talking about series and stuff, I think I'm right that Winifred Watson is the only book she wrote, which is one of those really annoying things where you think you've just discovered something exciting. And I don't know if you find this, but if you, it's a bit like I was a massive Beatles fan in my teens. And it's, I still love it when you discover a band or a writer or a, an actor and you suddenly realise you've got 20 of their albums or films or books and you, you have that brilliant knowledge that you can work your way through them at your leisure and then that equally that bittersweet time when you know it's the last time you will ever listen to a Beatles song for the first time or read something with new eyes by an author and so when you when you discover an author who you really like and then you find they've only written only written one or two or three books there's always this kind of like oh no why can't why couldn't you've written loads more no, I, I completely agree with you because some of my favourite authors, I've got like loads of, you know, you just devour everything. The other thing, just as an aside, and, and quite often uh, a friend of mine, and we've done some, some of these podcasts, and we talk about people who say they don't like the Beatles. I don't trust people who don't like the Beatles, and I just think they've got their ears painted on. How can you not like the Beatles? It's impossible. I don't know. I, I, no, just no. Just no, <laughs> but, no. <laughs> no, that's... What's wrong with them, for goodness sake? That's they're just trying to be big and clever, and they're no wrong, <laughs> just wrong. So, in terms of this, in terms of the series, now obviously people who are coming to your books, so if they, they've read Dear Mrs. Bird, then they immediately know there's another book there, yours cheerfully, and then hopefully in the the course of time there'll be another book and another book because it, the story and the characters you've created in that world it does lend itself to telling so many more different stories because that period, because it was such a, I suppose, a period of extremes where the world was at war, but people were still having to live their lives. I suppose it's a, it's a rich theme for a writer to 
Is that what I mean? I think so. I hope to keep finding interesting adventures for the different books. And I, I'm discovering it too. You know, it can be a, a, a small piece in an old picture post or something someone has said. And I can pick that up and try and find out more about it. And I said to someone the other day that the weird thing is, I'm now at a point where the characters tell me whether or not the idea is good enough in that if I start, I, I did this with the second book, I start, had an idea and I started writing it. And then I just thought, Emmy just isn't going to find this important enough. Bunty won't turn up for this. So went, right, okay, we're ditching that idea. Let's find something else. So there's this weird fictional editorial board who decide whether or not they want that adventure. <laughs> and I'm sure, really hope they don't get too strict. <laughs> or the fact that you, they're no longer characters, they're real people to you. So that's why they're telling you they don't want to do that or they don't want to do this. Yes, I think it is. There are things, I think I was talking about this with some writer friends just this week, actually, the, the sort of when you're learning to write or you're, you're doing creative writing, you know, people have lots of different approaches. And some of the approaches are like sit down and think about your characters, what, what, what's their favourite food or, or what colour are their eyes and all this sort of stuff. And, and I don't do that. In fact, I, can't, I can hardly remember what colour eyes most of the characters have because it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. It would only matter if they don't match anyone else in your family or you're really jealous of your brother because he got the blue eyes or whatever it happens to be. For me, or, or hair colour or whatever, I don't or if people are fat or thin or tall, I don't really care. What I care about is what do they think? If somebody said to me, what would Bunty think about this? I know exactly what she'd think and whether or not she'd be positive or negative. And so that for me is the important bit, what the, how they feel about things and what, what they feel strongly about, what drives them and what their, their passions are. And so, and it's quite fun when you bring in new characters. There are quite a few new characters in, in the latest book. That process of learning about them as you're writing them and particularly doing two or three drafts, standing back and going, this character, I don't know how they feel. I don't know what their thing is, whether it's their Achilles heel or the thing that keeps them awake at night. I think that's always a good thing to, to what keeps them awake at night. And once you've discovered that, then I think you start getting to the heart of the character and you can start to get to know them and how they will act in, in different scenarios. The other thing that strikes me when I'm reading the books is, when did MD get any sleep? Because they were just constantly working. I mean, it's it a really good question, isn't it? With Dear Bird, I, I was really, really lucky that um, I met someone whose mother had had the same job as Emmy as a volunteer in a fire station on the telephones. And I was able to interview her by letter. And I asked her practical things. What was your uniform like? And, and that kind of thing. And this lady had two jobs. And I, I said to her, when did you sleep? You, you volunteered at nights and you, you had a day job. And she just said, well, I don't know. We just got, we just did it. You just did. And so that kind of gave me the confidence to say, actually, it's okay for this character to, to have these two jobs. And she's 23 years old and she will sleep all Saturday or she will get an hour's kip on the bus home or whatever. And that's how she'll do it. Um, but yeah. yeah, it is extraordinary, isn't it? That they just survive with very little sleep. The other thing I was going to ask you about reading Winifred Watson, you know, kind of what you were saying earlier on of immersing yourself in the time, either through the music or through objects. Was that one of the reasons why you want you were reading books from set in that time, just to give you that sense of even just the language as well and, and the way people behave? Yes, I think it's a bit chicken and egg. I think the reason I write these books is because I love reading books that were written in this time. And I try not to be a pastiche, but certainly you pick up the language from magazines and things written at the time. And I quite like the fact that lots of the books written in the 30s and 40s were by authors that I like. Not much happens in them, really. They're not very plot heavy. Um, Angela Thurkle, um, who, who I enjoy her books a lot, she wrote dozens. And nothing happens in some of the books at all. You know, the big news will be whether someone gets a new scarf and that'll take up four chapters and I really rather like it. I mean these days we're very plot orientated I think you know you have to have stuff happening all the time which is great but I'm, I'm quite happy just reading a book written in the 30s or 40s where not much happens but they're quite funny and I while away two or three hours reading them and have a really lovely time nobody gets murdered and and you know there's no as Mrs. Bird would say, there's no unpleasantness. 
Um, <laughs> and, and it's just a nice thing. I quite like that sometimes. Do you know what always intrigued me about Mrs. Bird? I actually kept wondering what her story was. In the back of my mind, even as the story was unfolding, there was so much going on. I kept thinking, what's what's her story? Why is she, there has to be a reason why she is that way. We never kind of get get to that, but that that really that was always in my head. That's nice to hear, actually. Not meant, I've not heard that before, and I'm actually I do feel I've done as the writer I've done Mrs. Bird a disservice because we don't get to know her side of it, and the, and partly because it's written in the first person, we only see her as Emmy sees her, and so. She's the, the baddie, for want of a better word, and the adversary, certainly. And she is of her era, most definitely. But yeah, there is a whole backstory to her, which is perhaps a little more sympathetic. I think it would be fun to write her story at some point. But I think the main thing is that she's not necessarily had the easiest life, but her way is to thunder on through. And that's, that's the way things were done back in the Edwardian times, far more based on problem pages I've read. But yeah, she um she possibly deserves her opportunity. I might bring her back at some point. I think that's that's not necessarily to be in charge at the magazine because that's been done. But it, I haven't ruled out the fact that she could perhaps pop up at some point. That would be quite good fun, I think. And in the meantime, <laughs> I'll just keep thinking of all these different backstories for her in my head of what, how <laughs> I, why I think she is the way she is. We are, we are on to question four, and that is a book you couldn't be paid to read again. And we kind of alluded to earlier on of why toil your way or try and fight your way through a book you don't enjoy. You're kind of a bit like me. It's, I find it very hard to choose a book that I couldn't be paid to read again because if I'm not enjoying a book, I don't finish it. So it's hard. It doesn't leave a lasting negative impression on me. Yes. I, that's an evil question. Your question. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, no, because there are so many books that are good and are worth talking about or I've enjoyed and are worth talking about that. I don't really want to pick out ones that I haven't enjoyed because the thing that I think you have to learn as a writer is no one is going to like every book. And even if you're really lucky and you sell loads, you're still going to have people who, who don't enjoy your genre or your style or your voice or whatever it is. So a book I might not like, you know, could be somebody else's super favourite. But most books, I think, I, I mean, I belong to a couple of book clubs, which I, I like because obviously then you get to read perhaps out of what would be your initial choice. But I do find it hard to finish a book that I'm not enjoying because there are, as, as you say, there are so many books. Why waste time trudging through a book that some might be a perfectly brilliant book, but you just don't love it? Because somebody had said to me a brilliant phrase, and as I think you actually said it there, was, it's not for me. All that is is a subjective, your opinion. So yeah. a book that you might love, I might not like, and vice versa. Um, yes, absolutely. And that's such a good way of putting it. I do like it, though. Do you ever find that when you, you love a book so much that you want to tell everyone, but you have this sort of caveat, which is, I'm afraid that if you don't like this book, I can't be your friend anymore. It's a bit <laughs> yes. like the point. It's kind of, I'm really, I was like about Elizabeth McNeil's debut novel, The Doll Factory. I loved it so much that I, I kept telling everyone about it. But I said, you know, if you don't really love it, don't tell me. <laughs> because whilst we've been good friends for 30 years, I'm afraid I won't respect you. In fact, I'll proactively dislike you if you don't like this book. <laughs> I, I think that's only natural. I mean, if you read Elizabeth was on the, the podcast not that long ago, just to coincide with Circus of Wonders, which just blew me away as well. I thought it was yeah, an amazing another book. another smashing, fantastic book. I don't have a problem with you judging people whether they like books or not. I've got a, a book that I always, I probably mention in every single podcast, called The Cone Gatherers by a Scottish writer called Robin Jenkins. One of my favourite novels, my favourite Scottish novel. And it's one of the books, again, that I've, I've read and read again, and I always give it away to people. But with that same caveat that I will slightly judge you if you don't like it as much as I do. Yes, that's the thing about book clubs as well, isn't it? That sometimes if you really loved a book and then you have to sit there for two hours sipping your wine when other people might not like it very much, that's a real test of how to be a grown-up and smile politely and respect other people's opinions yeah. whilst wanting to make a voodoo dolly out of them and smash it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something like a nutcase. But um, there's nothing better when, than, than loving a book so much that you want to press it into other people's hands and then talk about it. Yeah. Love do that. You, do you not find that um, 
you give certain friends or, or people you know who, after a while, you, you, you really trust their recommendations. So they, they'll give you books. I think you'll like this. And you do. And so yeah, I get a really nice relationship of you recommend things to them that they love and the books that they recommend to you. You don't have to, you, you know, you don't have to recommend it with gush and praise. You just know that they'll like it. And then, as you say, afterwards, you can have a chat about it and, and there's a kind of mutual yes. appreciation. That's really nice, isn't it? And being in the lucky position of being sent proofs and stuff, that's always tricky because if you're, if you're lucky enough to read a book six months before it comes out, that's excruciating if you can't talk about it to anybody. So, yeah, I, it's great. I think, in fact, some friends of mine, um, we started a, a Zoom book club during lockdown because it, when lockdown was sort of easing off a bit, we, we'd all really enjoyed getting together every Sunday to, to just chat on Zoom. And we live all over the country. So we can't get together very easily at all. And then we just said, well, how can we keep going? I know, let's do a book club, just a really informal one. Once a month, we'll come together. And that's really nice. It's just five of us. And I've known all of them a long, long time. So you kind of, with all of them, I know that it's it's rare that we disagree hugely, but it's really fascinating because people get different things out of the books. And so, so that's really good. I enjoyed that loads. And, and again, I've discovered some books that I probably wouldn't have read without the others saying, okay, I reckon we should go with this one. So, yeah, it's great. You know, in terms of book clubs, I mentioned right at the start that you, your first book, Dear Mrs. Bird, was picked as, a, as one of the picks on the Richard and Judy book club, mm. which again is a, is a brilliant thing for any writer and, and for the book as well, because it gives it such a high profile and they've been such big supporters of writing new writers and, and yeah. literature for many years now that is so brilliant and they've done such a lot for so many authors and as, as, as a debut that was you know that was like winning an award when you get on, on the list because loads of loads of books are put forward so yeah that was a real a real highlight I think you know book clubs on tv and radio and stuff like that or through some of the retailers can only be good Exactly. Anything that's encouraging people to read, I think, is just has to be encouraged. Yeah. Well, we're on to the fifth and final question in the podcast, and that's either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. So you've given me two choices. The first one is My Mess is a Bit of a Life by Georgia Pritchett, and the other one is House of Glass by Adley Freeman. I'm reading them both at the moment, and they're, they're very, very different, but they're both really, really good. And the Georgia Pritchett one, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, I think it's out in the next week or so but that's really making me laugh it's her sort of memoir and she's really funny but it's it's she was a a very anxious child I think in the 70s and I was quite an anxious child in the 70s and so things are just making me laugh she's reminding me well I mean goodness she's hugely hugely BAFTA winning Emmy winning and all that stuff as as a writer anyway and so it's it's one of those books that you sit down and you feel very you're in you know you're in brilliant hands and you can just sit there and relax and just really enjoy it so so that is great and the other one that I'm reading at the moment is Hadley Freeman's House of Glass which is again superbly written and totally different and following through her family they're a Jewish family who she's following throughout the 20th century and and obviously there's a large amount in the war and it's just really really fascinating that's a book club choice for one of the book groups I'm in and um, a great example of something that is really good for us to discuss and people getting different things out of it. So so they're both, do I have to pick one? No, 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 you can. Because okay. it's funny, like people, obviously I have the easy part because I just ask you the questions and <laughs> I, I make you agonise over your book choices, but yes. there, are, there aren't actually any rules. So you can, You're a book <laughs> Bengali. <laughs> I, I like that, actually. I might start using that in my Twitter Is that handle. deeply offensive, though? I'm going to have to, that's, I don't know if I can t- call you that. <laughs> we might have to cut this bit out if I've called you something, called you something dreadful. <laughs> but yes, well, it was, well, I was looking at the questions going, only one, only one. How can I do only one? It's funny because when I started the podcast, the first few people, and again, sort of agonised over it and gave me one mm. book choice for each of the five categories, and then someone couldn't boil it down to one. So it was like two or three for each of them. And actually, a couple of people emailed me back and said, I didn't know you could do that. I said, well, there are no rules, really. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Culturally, somebody sends us a list and we feel that we've been sent a list in an email and there's, we're going to have, we're doing this podcast on this date at this time and you instantly assume there are rules. 
when I put down the Amada Book of Ghosts as well as the the, the pony books, I felt quite a radical for doing that. It's kind of <laughs> I put two. No one said I can put two, but I put two. <laughs> but other than that, I was kind of like, oh, there's a rule. I must follow that. Well, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't tell you in advance. You could have broken the rules. <laughs> Would have made it even harder. I'd have been as it was. I was pacing up and down by my bookshelves, trying to narrow it down. But it's okay. I don't have to not ever read another book. It's all right. Because the other thing is, if I ask you on a different day, a different time, you might choose other books. But nobody's going to say, no, no, I heard you on that podcast. You chose that. You can't change your mind. That's true. I think I need to. I need to calm down about this. It's not. You know, it's not like it's a tattoo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You've got to have five books tattooed <laughs> on your arm forever. That's, if you're going to do this podcast. Yeah, that's going to be my new podcast. <laughs> I've got to steal that idea. What I was going to ask you about the, the fact you gave me the, the two book choices and you mentioned uh, you're reading them at the same time. Is that something, because I'm very much a one book at a time reader. I find it difficult to split my reading attention. Can you read multiple books at the same time? Usually not, actually. But when it's non-fiction, yes, more easily, because particularly when I'm researching the novels, I have loads of books and I'll have, right, there's a chapter that's quite good and here's another bit here that's interesting. I need to learn more about that. So I have tons of books because they're all part of the research. If I'm reading novels, I tend to be one novel at a time. So and my favourite thing is I, I'm not one of those people that reads a couple of chapters before they go to sleep. I hate that. I like to say, right, I've got five hours on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it is. I can sit down and just, boom, read something in two sittings. That's my favourite thing if I'm able to do that. I love to do that. Yeah. Um, but with these, I'm reading one because of book club and one because it's been on my to-be-read pile um, for a little while and I just thought it'd be nice to read something completely different and it's making me laugh so I, I, it's a nice one to dip in and out of. When I'm writing, I don't tend to read novels about set in the war because if it's a really good novel set in the war, I'll, I'll just feel intimidated and sit there and think, why am I even bothering? my book's rubbish, this one is brilliant, I just want to give up. Or also, I just run the fear of, oh, what if I pick up the voice of somebody else? Uh, and so uh, if I'm writing, I'll either just stick to reading magazines from the era or whatever, or I'll read something so different that there's no worry that I will either compare what I'm doing um, negatively or feel I'm going to pick up the voice. So I wouldn't suddenly start writing Emmy and Bunty as a, a murderous psychopath in one chapter because I'm reading that. I, I know that won't happen. That would be quite fun. That would certainly uh, that would grab people's attention. <laughs> I mentioned right at the very start that yours cheerfully is, is just out and obviously all the kind of publicity and promotion surrounding that. But you're already, given that it's now two books in the series, are you already now thinking of the next book or what you're going to give us for, for book three now that we, we're all waiting patiently for it already? <laughs> um, yes, I know the sort of overall arc of what's got to happen in it. And at the moment, I'm, I'm doing the sort of more nitty gritty research to make sure that the story is going to be up to scratch. So it's at that exciting point at the moment where everything is possible, but I haven't got to the really difficult bit of making it possible. So, yeah, I like this part of, of the process. One of my favourite bits. Excellent. Well, we'll certainly look forward to, to when the next book comes out. Um, I did say right at the start, and I'll say to everybody, if you're wanting books that, on the one hand, will make you laugh, but also will make you think, and will kind of, as I say, I think cast a light on a part of the Second World War that maybe people didn't realise, never mind the, the kind of non-fiction history books, read Dear Mrs Bird and yours cheerfully, and I think your books do that absolutely perfectly. Oh, thank you so much. That's just, that's the nicest thing to hear and yeah hopefully they're, they're books that people can just enjoy and if, if it prompts an interest in in some areas brilliant but um I just want people to enjoy them really and that would be job done so I, I just hope people like them. Well given my, my experience um, I'm sure and obviously many people have already read them I, I don't think I think you've completely succeeded in that front anyway. Oh thank you thank you very much. Well, sadly, uh, we are at the end of the, the podcast. I, I have to say I've, I've absolutely loved chatting to you about your, your novels and also about your favourite books. 
and you obviously don't have any not so favourite books, so that was fine as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great fun, and it's it's just lovely to get to, to chat about books and talk about the Beatles, and mostly and talk about old books that really should be back in print as well. The fifth Armada Book of Ghosts, I can't tell you, really scary, really scary. So yeah, I think you can get them on, on eBay. It's been, it's been great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.